0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response.
1: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
2: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason Von Medding.
1: And I'm Xenia Chmutina.
2: This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen.
1: Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason.
2: Hey, Sonia. How are you today?
1: I'm good. It's March, so it's time for my favorite ever holiday. International Women's Day. Cool. Exciting. Are you celebrating? You've got to.
2: I mean, yeah. We, I mean, we should be recognizing Women's Day every day, right? But yes,
1: mm-hmm. you know, at least once uh, a year. That once... that's the
2: problem I usually have with like the you know a a day for for celebrating something that is like
1: N- normal, right? Like should be every day, sort of thing, right?
2: And it kind of it it does help to highlight the problem with with the everyday situation. It's kind of like this, like we have this conversation at home about Mother's Day as well it's like so so like on Mother's Day oh right so just for this one day we're gonna bring breakfast in bed and like make sure you don't have to do do the washing or something and and you don't have you don't have to clean just for this day right and then every other day you know we're gonna go back to like taking mothers for granted you know
1: yeah for sure yeah it's totally the same with International Women's Day but I you know at, at least in a way that it's Marked, I guess, right? And I, yeah. I feel particularly like in the UK. At least in Russia, we get a day off, you know. So there's there's mm. some bonus for all. But like in the UK, it's very tokenistic. So all of a sudden, you know, there are all these panels, right, talking about experience, blah blah. blah. But just like, is the same with like History Month, right, where exactly, we just yeah. focus on Black History for one month and then forget. Um. But but saying that, I I do like it as a holiday because it it always gives us such a nice opportunity to actually. Talk a little bit more about women's rights and kind of you know bring history and talk about revolution, right? And just kind of remember, I guess, um, a few names that that are generally forgotten. And I I know yeah. I every every year I talk about this on the podcast, um, but I think it's just important that that we do that because hopefully people who didn't know about it maybe it'll it'll make them aware, right? It'll make them ask some questions. Um, so, yeah, so I'm super excited about today's episode that the timing of it is impeccable. We hope you've been enjoying the conversations around solidarity we've had so far.
2: Yeah. And we're continuing this conversation today with a really special guest, someone whose work as Henny and I have been following and admiring for quite a while. So joining us today is Dr. Sharice Burden-Steli. Sharice is an associate professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University and a critical black studies scholar. Of political theory, political economy, intellectual history, and historical sociology, Sharice's work focuses on the transnational entanglements of U.S. racial capitalism, anti-communism, and anti-black structural racism. Sharice is a co-author with Dr. Gerald Horn of W.E.B. Du Bois' A Life in American History, and the co-editor of the recent book Organized Fight Win: Black Communist Women's Political Writings with Jody Dean. Welcome, Sharice.
0: Thank you so much for having me. We
1: want to talk about you a little bit before we dig deep into everything else. And I really like how on your Twitter bio, you state that you're Rodney's. When I saw it, I was like, this is amazing. so excited. And we will talk about Walter Rodney more today, of course. So over the past few seasons, Jason and I really have been enjoying to kind of learn about our guests a little bit and learn about their aspirations and motivations. So... What and who has inspired you? You know how did you become the scholar who really illuminates the reality of oppression and kind of really calls for liberation and comradeship?
0: Yeah, so You know, it's interesting. People all ask me how I was politicized, I guess. And like, it really was through like books and studies. So I don't come from like a movement family. I don't have an organizing background. I, you know, for a very long time was just like, I'm just an academic. And it was only relatively recently that I joined an organization and began to move toward becoming a fledgling organizer. I was an African American, African American studies major and political science double major. And I was fortunate to have a lot of professors that were internationalist in their scope, you know, that focused on Africa and the Caribbean, as well as the United States. And like, it was an undergrad that a professor called David Hines used me to like Walter Rodney and C.L.R. James and those types of thinkers. And then my one of my favorite professors, Dr. Lisa Aubrey, introduced me to economic development and modernization theory and the whole apparatus of development and the way those sort of racial logics and fearless logics that are embedded in the discourse of development. And so I, I think that really sparked my interest. I did my undergraduate honors thesis on proto-feminist trends in the Black liberation and civil rights movement. So I came to consciousness. It's funny, I identify sometimes jokingly as like a hotep Marxist. So hotep being like, you know, the Afrocentrics. Because I came to consciousness through Afrocentrism. Like I watched, you know, A Great and Mighty Walk from John Henrik Clark. And that was like just... Changed everything, you know. And then moved through like people like Walter Rodney. So through Black people, I've, I started engaging with Marxism. And then in graduate school, my dissertation advisor is a Guyanese historical socio- Marxist historical sociologist, and that really just fundamentally shaped who um, I became as a scholar. And then <clears throat> as time went on, I was curious about why there weren't any political economists in Black mm-hmm. studies, and that sort of shaped my whole. Dissertation that ended up being about the intersections of anti-communism, anti-radicalism, and anti-Blackness, and how institutionalization into academia as an intellectual arm of the state has a de-radicalizing function, even in a field like Black Studies, that came into being through political insurgency as a sort of intellectual rebellion that was one enunciation of Black people as part of the third world in the belly of the beast. So first thing about the manuscript will be about that intersection of the Black Scare and the Red Scare or anti-Black racial oppression and anti-radicalism. The second book project will be on mutual comradeship because as I joined an organization and looked around, I just saw so much fragmentation and so many organizations imploding that I wondered, you know, how is it that in this period between 1930 and 1950 of extreme political repression and, you know, duress on the one hand, but also like, broad-based struggles for Black liberation, for workers' rights, for the collapse of fascism. How was it that people struggled together? And what were the sort of ethical dimensions and the the forms of care as politic that helped to sustain a particular cadre of people who moved together through different organizations, even as they faced the House Committee on on Un-American Activities and Financial Terrorism and being Blacklisted, they still struggled. Right? They continued, some for decades, like Esther Cooper Jackson just passed away in August at the age of 105. So, so that's my interest is mutual comradeship. What are the, What is the sort of ethical form of struggle at the intersection of state repression and radical black struggle that sort of sustains us even as the contradictions are heightened, so to speak.
1: Well, our previous season seven was all about books and how we really ought to read outside of our disciplines. I think this is really lacking. And so your reflection really kind of resonates with what we've been talking about. In that there is very little disciplinary exposure. And I'm not sure we actually teach our early career scholars how to think, you know, how to maybe learn from books that are outside of their disciplines. And I wish everybody would engage with Marxist literature, even if they disagree, right? (laughs) It would just challenge so many notions. It would be amazing. And of course, we've been talking about struggle a lot, but I really appreciate how you put struggling together. I don't think we've really touched that before, you know, because we sort of Talk largely about care and love rather than that's the act of struggling together as an act of solidarity as well. So, yeah, thanks a lot for that.
0: There's a way that the liberal notions of self care or the neoliberalized notions of self care have overdetermined like the essential function of care as, as praxis. And part of what I think about with mutual comradeship is the way that it pushed back against hegemonic notions of gender because there were men who were engaging in forms of care work that are typically feminized, right, that become feminized forms of labor, but also how people engage principles struggle within organizations, not to collapse them, not to quote-unquote censor a particular discourse, but to hold those organizations or those parties to their ethical standard. I think the 50, 60 plus years of state repression, if not more, have really wreaked havoc on the ethical dimensions of how we need to relate to each other in struggle. And the same thing with joy. I hate this like joy and rest as revolutionary. It's like, no, these are not objectively revolutionary, but they are foundational to revolutionary struggle, right? Because it can't just be like gray jumpsuits and turnips. You know, there has to be there there has to be more to it. And so we have to be very careful about the liberal reductionism of joy and rest as revolution. That revolution has to have a joyful and a restful aspect to it because that's how, you know, that is how you have somebody like Esther Cooper Jackson or Louise Thompson Patterson who were long distance revolutionaries.
2: That's so good. In the last couple of years on the podcast and just in our own work, Sen and I have been looking at vulnerability in particular as a concept that has a different face than we usually see in disaster studies where it's portrayed as a weakness and as just being open to harm and nothing else. So it's a, it's like a bad thing in our field and we've been trying to flip that and whereas resilience is again used in our field in a hegemonic way as like a good thing that we should strive for individually, you know it's been co-opted for neoliberal purposes. Um, and so you know, this is really interesting that you're getting to that issue of things being used, In this sort of encouraging this individual response or individual striving and I wanted to ask you more about comradeship because this is another thing that we've seen used in this kind of way especially since COVID and we talked about this recently Ksenia about mutual aid you know being substituted for charity and the word comrade is interpreted by some as an ally and we see this as a way of navigating a neoliberal environment of privilege and oppression and making it just about feelings, individual feelings, interpersonal interactions. But I wanted to ask you how you understand comradeship and how do we build more of it and push back against some of these neoliberal impulses or uses of the word?
0: Yeah, so I think mutual comradeship is about like reciprocal like care and concern. And so like, I think one of the problems with like mutual aid and the mutual and mutual aid like matters, right? It's not a one way sort of exchange of goods. That part of satisfying the material conditions of a population is to the end of consciousness raising with the goal of building a mass base. Otherwise, it is just charity and charity is fine. We need it. Right. But here's the contradiction, I think, of mutual aid in this moment and pro- maybe in all moments is that on the one hand, we need it to model a sort of interstitial practice of what could be right. It can be a practice of, of like economic democracy when people don't want to say socialism. <laughs> <laughs> right. But on the other hand, it is fundamentally a way of negotiating the terms of our miseration because if it is that we could sustain ourselves in the context of the hollowing out of the state or have mutual aid that replaces the function of what the state ought to be doing because we pay taxes and because that is ostensibly what the social contract is, then what that does is it pushes the bar lower and lower. That is to say that we can survive on less and less. And this is actually the, the anti-Black logic that has undergirded the society that Black people can survive on less, so you can pay them less. They can be in the worst, most dilapidated housing because they don't need that much. And they have proven that they can. They are resilient. Mm-hmm. That is the coloniality of resiliency, that they are resilient in the most dehumanizing and dilapidated conditions. Therefore, they don't need anything. Mm-hmm. And so the way to resolve that contradiction or to interrogate that contradiction is that always the mutual aid is to the end of like structural transformation. And if it's Mm. not, then we have to rethink like what that actually means. And so part of mutual comradeship is that it's also a responsibility, right? So it's sort of like love as like radical responsibility, that you have a responsibility to yourself, to each other, to the ecology around you. So that, and that's also, by the way, how Cabral defines culture. Culture as like the relation, your relationship to yourself and to others and to ecology. So anyway, so I think that that's the whole idea of allies. See, the other thing about that too, what else has happened in the context of the rise of racial justice uprisings that in some ways, allyship has become like a shakedown. (laughs) Like... Mm. You know, I sometimes I feel I don't feel that bad for white people. No offense, you guys. But sometimes I'm like, man, what type of solidarity can be built out of? You can come here, but you can't say anything. We get to roast your ass, like (laughs) roast you about everything that's wrong and give us your money. You just sit in the back and you shut up. What solidarity is that? What politic can come out of that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not reparations, individual shakedowns donating to somebody's cash app is not even, it's not reparations. And so there's a way that the sort of individualist logic is even wielded at the mm-hmm. group level, whereby there's not a broader, there's no consciousness raising to be had. And so that's not comradeship because there's nothing reciprocal about that, mm-hmm. right? I think reciprocity in the mutual and mutual aid is a mutual comradeship is like really important that if I'm a comrade, You have a responsibility to me and I have a responsibility to you. And there's no mutual responsibility if my job as an ally or a a sensible comrade is just to give you money and to let you tell me why I'm incorrect and you can't say anything because you don't, you're not in the right body to challenge my authority. Mm. That's crazy. That's a crazy politic to me. I wouldn't do it.
2: It seems like that's like a dominant relationship though within academia that mm. I see. The way that researchers in our field relate to communities they might be working with, it's extremely tentative. And they're mostly liberals and they enter with a lot of guilt, but also pity. And that's not a that's not mutual comradeship at all that's just a white person with guilt ready to give money maybe or give pity but yeah like you're saying what is that doing to change the condition at all or the system Mm.
0: so yeah well and often those research those relationships are very extractive yeah Mm. because that is knowledge extraction but and don't get me wrong i think that why people should run it i do think that there is money to be given but we have to be clear about what that is to me my problem is misrepresenting what's actually happening mm. if it's a shakedown it's a shakedown we need all tools in our toolkit mm. like fascism outside it's rough out here right but i think the problem is that is misconstruing that as mutual aid and even the rise of like the gofundme stuff right People are in duress, like people are doing badly, but we have to understand that donating to somebody who's at all the intersections, right? Donating to their GoFundMe that is not mutual aid unless it is right unless there is a form of like reciprocity in a broader political horizon mm-hmm. that undergirds that sort of that mutual exchange and so it's a difficult thing i think i think that the sort of toxic individualism and the ngoization right the ngoization of activism and organizing and struggle also exacerbates this problem And we know that money is important. Resources are important, but it's not the solution because look at the whole Black Lives Matter debacle. If you don't change your ethical framework, if you don't change how you relate to the people, how you relate to comrades, then you're reproducing the status quo with a lot of money and radical language.
1: I really want to talk about your book. Here we go. Organized Fight Win. Thank you so much for writing it. And for those of our listeners who haven't read it yet, go read it now. We'll put the link in the show notes. I really enjoyed it. So thank you to and to Jody Dean, whose work I also really like, for putting this compilation of just fantastic pieces together. And I think it resonated particularly so much because I grew up in Soviet Russia, hardcore communist dad. And of course, much of the writing refers back to the women of early Soviet Russia. So I was just like, oh, this is exciting. You know, I grew up with this. I was pretty familiar. But then I was completely not exposed to political writings of the Black communist women. So yeah, thank you for this volume. It was great. And in the end of the intro, you enjoyed Georgia write, and I quote, the Black communist women of the early 20th century have a lot to teach the contemporary radical left about concrete, action-oriented, Materialist analysis and about organizing to fight, build, and win. End of quote. So, how do we actually broaden the kind of the site of production? You know, how can the modern left movements learn from this writing? And how do we actually use this writing to emphasize that we indeed need to build solidarity? And as you've been just saying, that this is solidarity that is against empire, right? That it's against the rhetoric of empire. And that is the solidarity that wouldn't be just about consensus, but would be a form that in a way asserts the presence of plural, that solidarity that allows us to defend our collective precarity.
0: Yeah, I think that what's really striking to me about, well, there's just a number of things that are striking about these women. And before I go into it, Jody and I just like to read the names of like the women who are collected in this volume, just so people know. Some are familiar, some aren't. So we've got Ella Baker, Carlotta Bass, Dorothy Burnham, Williana Burroughs, Grace P. Campbell, Alice Childress, Marvell Cook, Esther Cooper Jackson, Thelma Dale Perkins, Tyra Edwards, Vicky Garvin, Yvonne Gregory, Lorraine Hansberry. Dorothy Hunton, Claudia Jones, Maud White-Katz, Louise Thompson-Patterson, and Islanda Good-Robeson. So I think that their politic is they are local in their organizing and internationalist in their analysis and in their framework. And I think that what is essential about that is they take the very localized conditions around which they organize always have internationalist implications because they are anti-imperialist and because they are anti-capitalist, specifically socialist. Even the ones that are not in the CPUSA, these are socialist people. And so I think that what's important about that is that, so for example, when they're organizing around the Scottsboro case, when they connect the legal lynchings in the South to the invasion of Abyssinia in 1935 and to the Spanish Civil War in 1936, because they understand Jim Crow to be the US's enunciation of fascism. Mm -hmm. And so the way that they analyze fascism is they look at what are the conditions of women? What are the conditions of the racial and political minorities that are being subjected? Oftentimes when we analyze fascism, we're looking at its effects on the white working class and the white petty bourgeoisie. And that's how we determine if fascism is here. As I often say, you know, to paraphrase, I mean say, like fascism is the term Euro-Americans use when they start getting treated like the colonized. And so what these Black women do is they start with the colonized, right? The internally colonized. And so that relates to the Black Belt Nation thesis, whatever. I think that what these women show us is that the theory emanates from the practice, but you cannot reduce Black people to experience. So Lewis Gordon talks about how oftentimes The way that knowledge is produced is that black people have experience, white people have theory. But when we look at the practice and the different types of writing the different sites of knowledge production of these black women, we see that theory emanates from things like committee reports, from particular memoirs, right? From the sort of pamphlets that they put together around particular issues, from writings and articles in Freedom Magazine, that this is grounded theory, so to speak, right? And that a lot of it, it comes out of like self-criticism and about, and critique of the party, like principal critique of the party and what's not happening. So to make a short story long, I think that what we can learn from these women is that you will never see in these writings, like, as a Black woman, I'm saying this, so you need to listen to me. But rather what they're saying is, if you think you're going to build a mass base, if you think you're going to have a proletarian revolution, you have to look at who counts as a worker. And this is why we pay attention Mm. to domestic workers, for example, because all of the forms of super exploitation and oppression accrue around this particular group of workers who are the most exploited, who are unprotected by any type of labor legislation, who are subjected to the social relations of capitalism, even by white comrades. But they also, because of their historical reality, are also some of the most militant forces because Black women historically have been in charge of production and reproduction in their families and in their communities. And so Their analysis is not about identity. It's really about what I would call structural location or rather a relationship to the capitalist mode of production. And I think that's something that we can really learn that there's no body that's objectively revolutionary, but there are a set of structural realities that can potentially position particular groups to be essential or invaluable to building a mass base. Amazing.
1: And I do wish we were exposed more to these writings. How did you collect them? How long did it take you to collect these
0: essays? You know, we did a lot of it during COVID. And so <laughs> I, I had probably maybe 40% of these writings just because right. I'm a weird archive rat. I just spent all my time in archives doing random, I'm like covered in parchment and dust and shit. Perfect. But, and then it, the other really beautiful thing, why I say that organized Fight 1 is probably my most important Scholarly work is because it was such a collective effort. So, people like Minka Makalani and Eric McDuffie and Melissa Ford and Eric Gelman, John Monroe, they sent us stuff. They sent us the primary documents that they had. We also went through interlibrary loan to gather things. And then Jody's daughter, Sadie, shout out to Sadie, actually typed up all of those primary documents because they were in like microfiche and these different PDFs and et cetera. She typed them up. We had another graduate student, Adam McNeil, helping us to get permissions. So it was just such a collective process. And then we probably had enough material for two volumes, but then we had to narrow it down based on just kind of subjective factors right and then we have quite a few pieces from freedom magazine or from freedom newspaper which is digitized and it's available to all on nyu's website so that's how we gathered them.
1: one of the things i just want to follow up with the book a little bit more is the so it's chapter 36 by alice childress where there are different bits of the conversation from the freedom magazine and I really like freedom for issue four, number one, where she talks about why communism is bad and how McCarthy, of course, shows that communism is bad in the narrative of freedom, that we could talk about everything, right? Apart from communism, because that is bad. So you guys better know about that. And you better believe every word that we say, because we have democracy and that is good. And I find this narrative so interesting because it's with everything that we talk about in disasters, in that, you know, technocratic approach is good. Neoliberal resilience is good. And yet we keep reinventing the wheel with the narrative. We say, oh, okay, we need to engage with discourse. We need to engage with narrative yet again without ever learning that the narrative existed for decades, if not centuries before. So how do we tackle that? How do we learn that freedom doesn't mean that things that are bad kind of need to be banned. Bad, I use this in quotation marks. How do we learn from these women in this writing? How do we convince people?
0: <laughs> well, what's interesting is that piece by Alice Childress is actually a fictional piece. We have two fictional pieces and they're from Alice Childress. So she has this column about Mildred, who is this fictionalized domestic worker, but who's experiencing the world around her. So she talks about peace. She talks about atheism, et cetera. And so I'm not a huge, I don't read fiction. And so it, it's really to the credit of Jody that we even included those pieces. We went back and forth about their inclusion, but I think it's really important because again, it challenged us to think about what are what are the sites of knowledge production and mm-hmm. what counts as theory. And also, oftentimes, if you want to get the voices of black women, It's really in literature because oftentimes if you look historically until very recently, there weren't a lot of monographs. Like the monograph is not the medium of a lot of black women. A lot of black women write literature, right? Mm -hmm. But US black women in particular. And so I don't really think it's about convincing people. So just full disclosure, my politics are for the already converted. I'm a preach the choir type because Mm -hmm. we gotta preach to the choir. The choir be out of tune and out of step. And so we have to like rally the troops. And I feel like that's my job. But that being said, I don't necessarily think that we need to convince people. I think that we need to do the work that conveys where we need to go. I think that's really tricky because it's a balance between meeting people where they're at and gently guiding them like where we need to go, right? Because living in a settler colonial, racist, patriarchal society means that people have internalized those contradictions. And I, because of that reality, because in the United States, for example, we're the most highly propagandized people in the world. We can't really convince people of anything. Mm -hmm. I think that it's less about convincing and more about organizing and more about the sort of the practice of building the world as we envision it. Because I think the problem with convincing people is that it's flimsy. You know, I don't think it's very durable, but I think that what we can do is show what were these women doing and why is it that they're thinking the things that they're thinking, right? And how is it that people, regular people were at the center of their analysis and how is it that they understood regular people as agents of what is to be done, right? And what is it about being part of a collective that made them fearless, right? That gave them courage. Because I think Mm -hmm. we got to have that (laughs) because it's rough out here. Like we got to have that. Mm -hmm. And then what are the sort of patterns that they identified between different localities and different groups that allowed them, again, to envision the building of a mass base, even as Black women are largely at the center of their analysis, it wasn't a discourse whereby It's like, if you save us, everybody else will be saved. It was like, this is a very important constituency that we need to organize and we need to understand in our broader struggles Mm -hmm. and our broader efforts to organize. I think that is, that's how we move out of the identity reductionism and the identitarian way that organizing is. But on the other hand, we challenge the deeply entrenched white supremacy of the Western left. Mm -hmm. The white supremacy, the Western chauvinism the male chauvinism oftentimes. But if it is that you see Black women as a core demographic of mass base building, that is going to challenge deeply ingrained white supremacy. If you know that I cannot be free without this group, Mm. that's a whole different consciousness. That's a whole different ethic. And so it goes both ways.
2: I like that a lot and it definitely resonates with with the way we've been thinking about vulnerability and also talking about being propagandized. My kids are in public school here in Florida and yeah, I mean, like civics and history, they come home and tell me what happens in class and it's wild. And I think it's sometimes not even about um, convincing, but it's about just showing where the cracks are and, and opening that up so people can educate themselves and can think, oh, maybe this isn't, that sounds like propaganda, that sounds wrong, and then they can do it themselves. And that's the best way, I think, for people to learn or to actually come to a stronger position rather than us telling them what they should believe, right?
0: It's like rendering legible, right? Mm. How do you render legible what is happening? So it's not that I tell you what it is, it's like, well, why do you think it is that on the one hand, one particular group is attacked by the police and kettled and pepper sprayed when they challenge? And why is it that another group is largely not subjected to those things, that there is rationalization in a way that their protest tries to get shoehorned in as legitimate political discourse? And then look at this group, the color (laughs) and the presentation of this group and look at this group, right? So it's rendering legible Mm. things that may, even if they seem common sense, they may not be so. Mm. And then allowing people to make their own judgments and being there to gently offer up an alternative perspective, right? I think that is what is effective because the left can be just so dogmatic or so ham fisted right? And also quite pedantic and annoying. Nobody cares if you can quote, you know, page 38 of Grandrisa, like nobody actually cares about that. It doesn't matter in real time. We can get to that, right? But that's not how you con- convince mm-hmm. people or win people over with anything, mm-hmm. right?
2: Absolutely. And yeah, I think in disaster scholarship, we see a lot of normativity, a lot of opposition to anything radical or critical. Lots of advocates for, for remaining apolitical. Some of this, I think, is just about theory of research and science and striving for objectivity, you know, that is foundational to a lot of our disciplines. But yeah, like Ksenia and I and many others who we roll with are getting in, like, in trouble or getting funny looks from, from other scholars when we critique capitalism, even saying capitalism in a session, you know, people kind of go like, what? But especially mentioning socialism or communism, you know, people roll their eyes at us. And this kind of talk is seen as like too ideological, but that kind of apolitical gatekeeping really inhibits critical thinking about where risk is coming from in society and where we need to be looking to understand risk better, understand disasters better. And so about guiding others and creating these conditions where people can learn or challenge, particularly thinking about scholarship. How do we come alongside scholars to help them to recognize or appreciate the importance of ideology in conversations about struggle and understanding oppression and marginalization?
0: Well, you know, I'm of the perspective that some people have to die. And the petty bourgeoisie, I'm not super sympathetic you know, but at the same time, I take Walter Rodney seriously when he says that we have to be like guerrilla intellectuals, right? And we, right, and we have to rage really struggle where we're at. But I would say it's also like understanding, like where we're at. So for example, right? And what's the point? Sometimes the point is really just to dunk on people, right? Okay. But if the point is to bring people along, so you might not say capitalism or socialism or communism, but you might think about, okay, when we think about disaster, where is it that disasters accrue? And what are the populations who have the least sort of ability to come back from disasters? So when we look at like a Hurricane Katrina, versus a Hurricane Sandy, and we look at the populations that were affected by these things, what are the sort of sociological or even scientific factors that went into recovery? When we think about the politics around disaster relief, right, when a natural disaster is declared, et cetera, what are the factors that go into that, right? And I think that you can get at it that way. When you think about unequal access to resources, when you think about people who are in areas that are prone to both natural and unnatural disasters, why is that, right? How do we engage that? And as climate change renders more and more people to be treated like the colonized, so to speak, that has an actual direct impact on a broader audience. Because if we understand the people who are legitimated as sufferers right? who just have to cope with disaster, that net is being casted further and further. Even when we look at, for example, insurance companies offering flood insurance or not, and then who has to absorb those costs. So I think it's more, it's asking those types of questions that are actually ideological. They're actually about inequality. They're actually about racism and et cetera, but in a language that seems quote unquote objective, it is the questions that we ask that are rooted in our ideology, I think. And then we can offer up particular answers, but then also interrogate the answers that other people offer up, right? That's like the scientific method.
2: I think it's pretty comfortable for a lot of disaster scholars to appreciate that risk is coming from systemic inequalities in society but the response is often one of pity and aid and we see this in the articulation of vulnerability in our field and responding in that way is not comradeship responding in that way is charity and uh, it fits pretty well with a sort of neoliberal discourse in the field that encourages everybody just to be more resilient it doesn't really get to root causes or the system so you're really getting to like the difficulty of language here because you can articulate that in a way but we cross the line all the time and we get especially in papers you know we always get reviewer comments that are just annoyed or frustrated with our language because it's we're coming in too hot on it you know
0: (laughs) but i think that what we have to accept at some point is that the majority of our society is okay with some level of disposability and then what, right? And so I think that we have to believe our own analysis in that. And then it's, okay, who are we trying to win over and who do we need to put in our mind bank as these are not the people that we save. These are our enemies probably. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not calling for really sort of organized violence. I'm just saying like, you know, those are the people you engage strategically, right? But these are not comrades. They are allies. There are people who are allies. So you have yeah, to be strategic about that engagement.
1: Absolutely. You know, you're really hitting the nail on his head here in that I, I don't think many people understand the difference between comradeship and allyship. And this is why some people, it will always be uncomfortable to talk about oppression, I don't know, maybe they just don't care, you know, maybe they've never experienced depression, or maybe they have decided to engage, fight, and or organizing. And I also feel at least in the well, UK, they, well, so they care. So they care. They care, you know. In
0: a, in a colonized fashion. They sure. don't care in a sort of transformative way. And so I just think we need to be abundantly clear about like colonial care and transformative or radical care. Yeah.
1: And apolitical care, where, you know, I kind of tick tick the box and that's, that's nice care. It's
0: always apolitical is political because that means that you are legitimating the status quo. It is, pol- it is political.
1: But they don't want to acknowledge that, right? It's a very convenient stance to have that, like, I'm stand- standing away from that. And it, at least in the UK academia, a vast majority of academics are almost... Stepping away from activism, you know, it's very rare that there is a conversation about academics being activists as well. And we see that like even in our picket lines, which are small and diluted because people academically believe and shouldn't be involved in politics. And that is my political choice. But of course, they don't say that. I struggle. I think a lot about activism and academia, and I, I don't know why there isn't more engagement.
0: I mean, that's how class functions, mm, right? True. So like it's academic care, education. It, it everywhere, right? And so the university is meant to reproduce class positions. And so it has to be people who are committed to committing class suicide as Amilcar Cabral would will, will describe it, who are going to engage in those struggles. But most people are loyal to their class, right? And it's only when conditions begin to be applied to them that they make a decision or not. Academia is textbook labor aristocracy. It is the archetype of labor aristocracy. And so tenure track professors could care less about adjuncts, right? Until their workload gets increased because of (laughs) X or Y ways that adjuncts or contingent faculty are being treated. And so again, in that regard, it's about raising consciousness, like, hey, you're a worker you sell your labor for wages so even if you're petty bourgeois you're a knowledge worker at the end of the day and then some people they'll give with it or they won't and so again i just think that we have to be very clear and sober in our analysis and that it can be creeping liberalism when we try to win everybody so like even the stupid discourse that some leftists have about going after the Trumpists and this weird understanding of populism it's like hey no like, that's not a good use of our energy, maybe for some people. But we have to be very clear about what about what the reality is. And the problem is that we're not very clear. The liberalism is like hearts and minds. That is not objective. It's hard because that means that some of your friends, some of your favorite colleagues, some of you know your family members or your, your loved ones, they are the people that ultimately we're going to have to struggle against. And that's a really hard reality you accept.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Charisse. This has been amazing. Thank you very much for spending time with us today and just for talking to us. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for
2: having me. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
1: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon.
2: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
1: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
2: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.
0: You have been listening to Cassinia, Jason, and me, Dr. Sharice Braden stelly on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.